0: This morning, why don't you turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Let's read our text in verse 37 to verse 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Let's read God's Word together. It says this, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Let's pray. Father... As we approach this text, we're just struck at how you work in the lives of your people. It's hard to believe that 3,000 souls could be saved, let alone in one day. And yet you clearly show that you are able to do it. Mankind cannot produce this. Methods cannot produce this. Only you can do this. That's why I pray Help us to understand what this means and how we can apply this to our lives. I pray that You would work in our midst, in our assembly, to produce such extraordinary growth like what we've just read. Father, be with me. Help me to be clear. Help me to remove any distractions in my thoughts, but help me to be focused so that Your people would be edified, built up, and that this time would be very profitable. As we spend time in your word, may Christ be honored now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The title of this morning's sermon is When God Sends Revival. When God Sends Revival. On February 8th, 2023, a chapel service was held in Asbury University that continued nonstop for 15 days straight many have called it a movement of the holy spirit and a genuine revival and as a result other colleges around america seem to be experiencing a revival and as with any revival there are always skeptics asking if these are genuine movements of the spirit of god mindful christians are right to be skeptical because 1 john 4:1 says beloved Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So I I will reserve my comments about Asbury towards the end of the sermon, but I want us to adjust the topic of revival, of when God sends a surprising work, an amazing work of adding souls into his kingdom. What exactly is a revival? Well, Solomon Stoddard, if that name doesn't ring a bell, he is the grandfather of Jonathan Edwards. In 1712, he defined revival as this. some special seasons wherein God doth in a remarkable manner revive religion among his people. It's a special season where God does a work of reviving religious affections amongst his people. Jonathan Edwards himself said revival is this, quote, a surprising work of God. Now, it's difficult to define this term because words change over time. And today there's really two main categories when you bring up the subject of revival. And the first view comes from the history of a man by the name of Charles Finney in the 19th century, And what he believed was that revival is not a surprising work of God or a special season. Instead, he believes that you can actually set a time and a place for revival. You can produce mass media and invite people to a revival meeting. And when you have this revival meeting, then the Spirit of God would come into that place and produce salvation. That view is still prevalent today. In fact, just last week, I saw this ad, and the ad said this, quote, let me, let me read it to you very carefully. The quote says this, Extended revival service on February 20th at 6 p.m., child care will be provided and free Chick-fil-A sandwiches for the first 600 guests. This view holds that you can have a revival between the hours of 6 p.m. until whenever it ends. I often wonder what will happen at 11 p.m. Will the revival end? Will the Spirit of God not come? That's one view in the line of Finney. But then there's another view, another very popular view of revival, and it comes from the Pentecostal tradition. And they believe that true revivals are verified when there are signs of of the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, such as speaking in tongues, healings and other extraordinary events take place and so those are the two views one is that you can actually schedule a time for when god can revive his people and then the other is actually he will revive his people and here's how you can know he revives his people because of these extraordinary miraculous gifts of healings and 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 tongues and things of that nature those are the two most popular views today amongst evangelical Christians. But I think there is a third view, and I think it's the view that's outlined for us here in Scripture. And it's simply this. Here's what I think God intends for when He revives His people. God produces extraordinary growth through ordinary means. That is to say, God at times will grow His church in extraordinary ways. But always through normal and ordinary means. Nothing above and beyond what He has prescribed in Scripture. God sends extraordinary revival through ordinary means. Extraordinary growth through the ordinary means of grace. Now what are these means? How does He do this? How does God produce such amazing results. But yet, the method that he employs is so ordinary. It's so basic. What is it? Well, I I believe in our passage, God does it in three ways. First, by conviction, then by salvation, and then by transformation. First, by conviction. By conviction. Look at verse 37. He says this, Now when they heard this, they were pierced, to the heart. What Luke is referring to is, they just heard a sermon from a man that was unexpected to preach such a sermon in Peter. Peter's sermon begins in verse 14. And he he preaches with such conviction through preaching. That's the aim of preaching, by the way, is to produce conviction. But instead today, instead of preaching, the church has utilized a variety of ways to get people to come and to change. Instead of preaching, what we have today is small group activities, sharing times, culturally relevant worship service, contemporary music sets. And if that doesn't work, Chick-fil-A, childcare. But the one thing that has been primary and dominant from the very beginning is preaching. Throughout the book of Acts preaching has been the primary method for gospel ministry. In Acts chapter 4 verse 2, when the Jewish officials told the disciples stop preaching and teaching, the, the, these men were unfazed. They instead said this quote, every day in the temple and from house to house they kept on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ, as it says in Acts 5 verse 42. In Acts chapter 8, you see the record of Philip preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch. You see the the evidence in John chapter 8 of John and Peter preaching to the Samaritans. Where it says, And so when they they had solemnly testified and spoken many the words of the Lord, they started back in Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. After Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, it says this, He began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Acts 9, verse 20. So God uses the preached Word to produce something called conviction. It's not drawing. It's not music. It's not drama. It's not crafts. It's not TED Talks. It's not culturally appropriate worship services. It's preaching. Preaching. Expository preaching, to be exact. Where the Word of God is explained. And that's the kind of sermon... Peter preaches, he's explaining what took place, how the fulfillment of the Spirit would come as it's prophesied in Joel chapter 2. And the, the coming King that's described in Psalm 16, he explains that God would send His promised Messiah, the promised Savior, to save people from their sins. But instead of crying out, they reject Him and deny Him. And they don't want anything to do with this Christ. Listen to the words of Peter go to Acts chapter 2 verse 22. Listen to his words the, the the weight of Peter's words when he would preach. He said this, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. And God raised Him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for Him to be held and held to be held in its power. You see, when people would hear preaching like that, it says that they were pierced to the heart. There was a... A result of such preaching that there was fear that their heart was pricked, their conscience was pricked, and their their heart was cut. The New English Translation Bible has a footnote saying that that phrase, "pierced to the heart, is an idiom, which means there was an acute emotional distress. That's a fancy word for they panicked when they heard this. Now, why would they have such conviction? Because... This is what happened. They disobeyed the Christ that has come. The Christ that has come, they rejected Him, they rebelled against Him, they denied Him, and then in the end they killed Him. And here's what scared them to death. They thought they killed Him, but they discovered that God raised Him up from the dead. And if God raised Him up from the dead, that means God is going to judge them again. God is going to hold them account. God is going to find all who rejected His Son and hold them into account. And so it's no wonder they would say, Brethren... What shall we do? What are we going to do? It's the same question that the Philippian jailer said to Paul in Acts 16 when he said, "Sirs, what must we do to be saved?" Preaching is not necessarily about producing a decision. Oftentimes, when we, when, when preaching takes place, there's a, a desire for people to make a decision. Come to Jesus. Come now. Come up to the altar. Or whatever the case may be. Put your hand up and pray this prayer. Preaching is not so much about a decision. Preaching is impressing upon the the Word of God so that conviction is produced. It's something that you and I cannot produce in the hearts of people. We need the Spirit to do this. This is why Jesus said, I'm going to send my Spirit... And he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Go to First Thessalonians. Go to 1 Thessalonians 1. And let me show you the kind of power that comes when the preaching of the Word of God comes with conviction. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5 says this. Listen carefully to what Paul is saying. He says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, But also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. There's conviction. Preaching is not about getting people to pick Jesus among other choices that you have left from other gods or to pick Jesus so that he can help you in some capacity Preaching is not about persuading people to choose Jesus because he's somehow going to improve your situation. Preaching, in large part, is about the gospel that is declared to sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God and who cannot save themselves, and so God shows that his wrath is coming for sinners, and so the only way out is through Jesus Christ, and so the, the sinner brings is brought to conviction, and so they cry, help, oh God, help. Because sin must be impressed upon the heart, sin must be exposed in the heart so that the weight of sin produces the spirit begotten conviction, so that one will cry out for mercy. What shall I do to be saved? That's the goal of preaching. Is to produce that kind of conviction. Now notice what else happens there's conviction. And then there's salvation that comes. Look in verse 38. He says this. Back to our text in Acts 2. And Peter said to them, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. What happens when a person is convicted? How are they saved? What is the answer to that question? How would you answer that question if someone were to come up to you and say, How can I be saved? Wouldn't that be wonderful? In the middle of a sermon, someone just stands up, please, I need to know how to be saved. What would you say? Here's what Peter said. He said, repent. His answer was simple, repent. What exactly is repentance? Repentance is the grace of God given to a sinner whereby he realizes his grievous sin against God while apprehending the mercy of God causing him to hate his sin enough to turn from it and follow God, endeavoring to walk with him and according to his word. See, the reason people repent, because there's two things that they see for the first time. They've never seen this before. They see themselves for truly who they are, a sinful creature, against another thing that they've never seen before, the holiness of God. When they see the lowliness of who they are and the grandeur and the glory and the justice and the beauty of God, That's what brings them to this point of repentance. There's a realization, Oh God, I've not just sinned against man. I've not just sinned against your word. I've sinned against you. That's what I've done. And so what does repentance then entail? It it entails a change in a direction of your life that's motivated by your hatred for sin because of the mercy that you received, because of the God that you've now believed in. Now there's a danger where people get confused about repentance. The danger is some try to change their life. They try to improve their life without any recognition of sin. That's called self-help. And then there's some who recognize their sin. I know I'm a sinner. But their problem is they're just not bothered by it. I know I'm a sinner. Just like everybody else. But the thing is, they don't hate it enough to turn away from it. And then there's others, they, they, they will believe God. They, they love God. They say they love God. But their sin, they don't hate their sin. They still hang on to it. They they want to have two masters. They want to have Jesus, but then they still say yes to their flesh all the time. There's, that's not repentance. Go back to 1 Thessalonians. Here's a, here's a picture of repentance that you can see very vividly. Here's what it looks like. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9, he says this, when Paul heard about the kind of salvation that's taking place in Thessalonica, this is what impressed him about them. He says this in verse 9, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You see, they turned. They turned to God. That's hatred of their sin, to leave it behind, that they would leave it and turn to God. And then they would serve God because of the mercy that they received. Now, I, because of what You've shown me, the mercy that You've shown me in Jesus Christ, what can I do but serve You, Lord? And now look at the faith that they exercise because now I believe in the living and true God. Faith is tied to Repentance. They, they believe in this God, and because they believe in this God, they want to follow this God and leave behind this life of sin. Now the question is, how does one express this inward, internal repentance that they've now experienced because of how God opened their eyes to behold the beauty of Christ, who forgave them of their sins? How does an expression of this repentance that displays an abandonment of this world. Well, Peter says simply repent and be baptized. Peter says repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, we have to be careful. Peter is not saying anything about baptismal regeneration. He's not saying you're saved by baptism. He's not saying that at all. He's showing that repentance is evidenced or shown... By baptism. There's a strong tie between these two words. He's using them almost interchangeably. He's using it where one word takes the place of another. What's the word that takes place of repentance? It's baptism. It's what, um, it's what we would call a metonym in English. It's, it's, for example, we don't say... Uh, the president said... We would say, Washington has come out with these laws... We don't say the president declared. We say Washington. Or we would say things like the pen is mightier than the sword. That's a metonym. One word is acting on behalf of the other to show the tie of the two words together. The same thing is happening here where the word repent is described or expressed through this act of baptism. Now how can we know that that's exactly what's taking place? Let's look carefully at the text. He says repent And then it says, and let each of you be baptized. That verb, that word repent, it's in the plural. He's saying all of you repent. It's in the plural form. Y'all, is how they would translate that. Y'all repent. But then he says, be baptized. That's in the singular. So all of you, let each of you now, this is how you repent, let each of you repent in this way, through baptism. That's why the NAS says, let each of you be baptized. Now, for the Jewish hearer, they're thinking, baptized? I've already been baptized. Baptisms were taking place all the time in the in the ancient world. There was the baptism of the Jews through through purification. There were baptism of uh, purification rites. And then there was also baptisms with John the Baptist. They were getting baptized all over the place. And so they thought that, well, the, the Jews thought that the only ones that need to be baptized are those that are non-Jews who are entering into Judaism. They're the ones that need to be baptized. And God, through Peter, saying, no, no, if you accept Christ, none of those baptisms mean anything. The one that I want you now to be joined to is Jesus Christ and to be baptized in His name for the forgiveness of your sins. Let each of you be baptized. Make Christ your own. This is the decision you must make. Your family cannot make this decision. You cannot do this corporately. As a people of Israel, you can't do this corporately. Individually, as you come to saving faith, you be baptized. This is a break from your former thoughts and views of baptism. All of that. There's a break from all of that into now being joined to Christ. You're attaching yourself to Jesus Christ in this one act. It's a picture of repentance, isn't it? You're showing that I'm breaking from this world, I'm disconnecting my life and direction from this world, and I'm reconnecting it to Christ or connecting it to Christ. It's a redirection. The tie between repentance and baptism is that baptism is the outward expression of this inward repentance. And this is the way God how God wants you to demonstrate that break, to be immersed, to be joined to Christ. To show that there's a break in your allegiance from the world and you now have a new allegiance to Christ. It's an expression of your repentant faith. And as I said, this is something that individuals must do. Parents can't make their children be baptized. Children can't be baptized for the sake of trying to please parents. It's something that individuals must do. Because salvation is an individual decision of every single person must exercise by faith and repentance and demonstrating that repentance in baptism. But baptism is not what saves you. Here's what saves you. Look at verse 38. What is it that's able to save you? It says, you are to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It says, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What what Peter is saying is, There's things that are taking place the moment you're saved. The Spirit is coming. You're you're repenting of your sins. You're exercising faith. The way you demonstrate that is you're being baptized. What Peter is saying by the promise or the arrival of the Holy Spirit, he's saying the promise that was made in the Old Testament is now being fulfilled in you through the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's the promise that was made back in Jeremiah 31 when God says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. It's a promise of the old, in the Old Testament, of the new covenant that was coming. The promise of forgiveness of all sins is coming. That's one part of the promise. And the other part of the promise is in Ezekiel 36, where God says, And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to walk in my ordinances. Why is it, how is it, more is a better question, how is it that you can repent? How is it that you can. Exercise faith. Ezekiel 36 says this because I put my spirit within you, and as I put my spirit within you, you will be careful to observe my commandments. Because God puts his spirit within you. And this is the promise that God says he's given to you. The promise of the Holy Spirit is going to come to you as you receive him in faith and repentance. That's the promise. The promise is the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit Himself, and the promise of forgiveness of all your sins. Now look at verse 39. He says, For the promise is for you and for your children. Now, let, me, let, let me just stop there. The promise is for you and for all your children. There's been some misunderstandings of this verse. Some have taken verse 39 as the key verse for infant baptism. They see the promise of the covenant in the Old Testament where they see the promise of the covenant given to Abraham and his seed, Abraham and his children. And the sign of that covenant was through circumcision. So the the adult and the children were circumcised. That's the sign. And so they see that sign continuing on in the New Testament. But the sign has changed. Instead of circumcision, the sign is now baptism. And so when they see this phrase, the promise is for you and for your children, they're thinking, oh, If I'm to be baptized as a a parent, then my children need to be also baptized as a sign that they're now into the covenant. Now, respectfully, I am not at all persuaded by that interpretation that this is a text to validate that children babies, more precisely, are to be baptized. Instead, what Peter is saying is not not about infant baptism at all. He's talking about the scope of And the availability of this promise. To who is it for? Who is this promise for? Who is it given to? In verse 39, here's three groups of people that he says. Look closely. There's three groups of people that he says that it's for. The first group, is it's for you. This promise is for you. Right now, as you're hearing the preached word, you can be saved right now. It's for you. Who else is it for? It's also for your children. That is to say, your generations after you. The scope of the gospel, it will not end with you. It will go beyond you all the way to your children and generations after you. Remember, he's talking to the Jews, to your generations after you. And then not only is it for you, there's also a third group. The third group is for all that are far off, all that are far off, meaning all that are beyond your people. All the scope of this promise is so expansive, it's not limited to you it's not limited even to your generation, but it's as far off as you can imagine the gospel will go forth. Now, how can I check? How can we verify that is the meaning of this passage and not infant baptism? How can we for sure know that that is the meaning that there's this promise is going to go forth in those three groups starting with you here and then for your generations to come and then for those that are far off? How can we verify that is the interpretation? Well, go to Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And this is how we can check. Because Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus is explaining that when He departs, He's going to send the Spirit with power. The Spirit is going to indwell these scared disciples, fearful disciples, and He's going to empower them. And look at what He says in verse 8, And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall then be my witnesses notice the locations starting where in jerusalem that's you right now in jerusalem and then as you continue to have children and your children disperse they're going to go where to judea and samaria they're going to they're going to move around leave they're going to intermingle they're going to mix and then it's going to go even beyond the jewish people it's going to go to the remotest The The gospel is so powerful that it's going to leave the borders of Israel and go to the far off places, the remotest part of the earth, to the Gentiles. That's you and I. The scope of the gospel is so powerful it's not limited to just one group of people. It goes beyond to the most far off people. And that's encouraging. Because when I think about who can be saved and I I see a person lost in their sin and I wonder, they're too far off. They're too far gone. It's impossible for them to be saved. But according to the Word of God, it's not just for you. It's not just for your children. But for all who are far off, no matter how far and distant they may be from God, God can save them. The scope of this Gospel is available to all men, all women, children of all ages. That's why it's called good news. It's not just limited to a people. Ethnic boundaries are going to be broken. God is pursuing for Himself a people from every tribe, from every tongue, and every nation. That's the scope and availability of this gospel because Christ is so glorious, He doesn't want to show His glory just to one people group. He wants to show it to all people groups. That's the power of the gospel. That's the glory of God being displayed as the gospel is going forth. He wants to show His glory through all nations to all the nations. Notice the origin of this. How can how can this how can this work? How can people be saved? How can they repent and and come to saving faith? How how are we to do this? It says in verse thirty nine at the very end. How is it that they are to receive this promise? How is it that they are able to receive preaching with conviction? At the very end of 39, pay careful attention. It says, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. You see, the scope of God's saving work, we don't know what God will do. We don't know how far God will go. But what we do know is that God is sovereign. God is the one that calls sinners to himself. God is free to go anywhere He wishes. John explains the Spirit of God like the wind. It blows wherever it wishes. And I think about revival, and I think about how it happens historically. It happens through multiple nations. God starts in Jerusalem. Explosion. Then He goes forth out beyond the skirts of, of, of Jerusalem onto Rome, the Roman Empire. There's a, there's a mixture of Christianity. Christendom is birth. In Rome, and then it goes throughout Europe, and then it leaves Europe because of their corruption, then it transports the gospel from there all the way to the lands of the United States, and from the United States goes through all the nations of all the world, and then it goes from place to place. No nation is secure or guaranteed revival. God is free to move anywhere He would wish. There's revival taking place in countries that you would not imagine is, is possible. In the Middle East... In, in, in the Asian countries of China and in Korea, people are being saved. How? Through preaching. Preaching with conviction to bring sinners to their knees and crying out, Oh God, help. This can't be produced. You can't set a limit and say God is going to come on Monday because that's when we're meeting. And then it's going to end at 8 o'clock because we start at 6 p.m. And it's going to end at 8 p.m. it You can't put a time limit on God because God is sovereign and God is free. And He will save as many as He desires. He is not bound to our methods. He's not bound to our timelines. He's not bound to our ethnicities. He's not bound to our culture. He's not bound to our laws. He's not bound to our trials. That means no matter how wicked and sinful our government will instill laws against Christianity, He's not bound by that. God can use wicked men... To save wicked sinners. He can save whomever and whenever He pleases because He is completely sovereign. As many as He will call to Himself. You know what that means? That means He can save you right now. That means He can save you right now if you don't know the Lord. That means He can save you right now. You don't have to wait for a revival meeting. You don't have to come to an open house. You don't have to come to a special meeting. You don't have to come to a special fellowship group night where the Gospel is going to be preached. That means you can be saved right now where you're sitting if you don't know the Lord. You can come and repent of your sins and trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. You can do it right now as you sit there listening. No timeline. No revival schedules. Has God placed conviction in your heart? I don't know. I don't know your life circumstances. I don't know what week you've had. But God does. So he uses the voice of imperfect men like myself to preach his perfect word to sinful hearts that would produce conviction that salvation would be born. And lastly, notice what else he does when when revival takes place. He doesn't just save people. He doesn't just save them and leaves them. He doesn't just save His sheep and then leaves them. He's not that kind of shepherd. He's called a good shepherd. He will then gather them. He will take them into His his fold. And look at what He does in verse 40. Notice the transformation that takes place in the lives of these people that are now saved. In verse 40, he says this, And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be safe from this perverse generation. And that phrase, and with many other words, he solemnly testified, that's just, you know, that's just, that's the problem of every preacher. They say a lot of words. And so Peter's just saying, or Luke is just saying, he he kept on talking. What I'm writing here is way more than what I'm actually recording. But here's the gist of what he's saying. He kept on exhorting them. He kept on pleading with them. He kept on asking them, come, be saved from this perverse generation. He's, can I say this? He was being very politically incorrect in his preaching. Did you know it's okay to be offensive? It's okay to offend people with your heralding, with your teaching? Now, you can offend with the gospel. The gospel is offensive enough. I don't mean to say you can be rude or be a jerk when you're preaching the gospel. But in the gospel, in the message of it, as you speak it to people, it will rub them the wrong way because it goes against all of their propensities. It goes against all of their thinking. It attacks the very strongholds that their minds are held captive to, which is the direction of this world. And so it offends them and here, Peter offends them with these words, Be saved from this perverse generation. Now, why is this generation perverse? Why is it perverse? Why would Peter say that? Why was it that at that time, the people were described as a perverse generation? Was it perverse because of the LGBTQIA movement? Was it perverse because of the abortion laws of his day? Was it perverse maybe because of the grooming laws and for sexual perversion that was taking place? Was it perverted because of the rampant cultural Marxism and wokeness and social media and vaccination confusion, anti-homeschooling laws? Was that why it was called a perverse generation? You're getting my point. I don't think it was any of those things. The reason they were called a perverse generation was simply this, because they rejected and rebelled against Christ. That's why they're perverse. You see, God evaluates every nation, every people group, every culture on one condition. Will they embrace or reject my son? Look at Psalm 2. Go go turn in your Bibles. Go to Psalm chapter 2. Notice, why is it that the nations are so angry and so hateful of God? Why are they in such an uproar? The answer to the question of the one who wrote Psalm 2 is is this. Why? He asked this question in Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar? Or some translations say, why do the nations rage? And the peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand. They're going against someone. The kings, the rulers, you can think the presidents, the leaders, the congressmen, the politicians, they're taking their stand. And the rulers, they're counseling together. They're, they're, they're providing a cohort, uh, an association, a coalition. Against who? Against the Lord. And against His anointed, His Messiah. Against his Christ. That's why the world hates Christ. They want him removed because they want to establish establish themselves as their own king. That's why every generation will always have its share of perverseness. Because every generation will always be anti-Christ. Against Christ in every generation. It was true then in Peter's day. It was true then in the early church. It was true all the way to this generation. We, along with the people in Peter's day, are a perverse generation. And notice what God wants to do. He wants to save you from that. He wants to save you from that. This is the kindness of God. He wants to remove you from that so that you will not face the wrath of His Son. To remove you from the judgment to come, He wants to save you, that is to transform you from this generation. And so what happens to those that are saved? They receive His Word, verse 41. So then those who had received His Word, that is, they exercise faith, they receive the truth, the reality that tells them who they are for the first time, a sinner in need of God's grace and the realization that God alone in Jesus Christ is able to save them. They received that word and to demonstrate that faith, to demonstrate that allegiance to Christ, it says again, be baptized. And then they were added that day three thousand souls. You see the picture of this is startling. Three thousand in one day. I, I I long for one person to be saved. I long for A couple, maybe. Imagine 3,000 in one day. I feel as though my faith is so weak that I can't imagine that ever happening. But here it says God can do it. If anyone can do it, God can do it. And it says that when they were saved, it says they were added. They were added. Added to what? In that day they were added. Added where? It says they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Someone was taking a record of all the people that were saved. There was some kind of attendance record. They were added for the first time to the first church in Jerusalem. They were added to a church because God knows that by design, people cannot be left on their own when they're saved. They need to be added to a place where they can receive a shepherd who will shepherd them. An elder, a pastor that can watch over them, protect them, nourish them. You see, the love of God, when he revives people, when he saves people, he doesn't leave them to themselves, he adds them to churches. And in this instance, he adds them in this explosion of salvation that takes place. He doesn't just save them, but he cares for them by transforming them and putting them into a church. That's what happens when true conversion takes place. Now let me pause for a moment and think about the conversion of 3,000 souls. When you hear of revivals today, when you think of mass revivals, oftentimes it's people, they're counted because they raise their hand. I've been to those meetings. I've seen that when um, someone will stand up and say, everyone bow your heads in prayer. And if you would like to receive Christ, raise your hand. Or some would say, why don't you come on up? And so they count them. That. And so when you walk up, or when you raise your hand, oh, that person is saved. That's the mark. of. That's how we know that person was saved. Hey, they came up. The altar, or hey, they raised their hand, or hey, they pre- professed to know Christ. The 3,000 that were saved in that day, this is not the kind of salvation that we think of today, where it's kind of like a momentary thing, like a summer camp type of high that you we all have experienced, uh, a momentary excitement, a uh, momentary decision to follow Christ. This was born out of a conviction of their sin. And they knew that if they were to be saved, that meant that they would have to repent, leave family behind, join and be identified with this new religion that no one's ever heard about. It was called the way and following this guy, this man from Nazareth, who's dead and came back to life. That's pretty radical. And what that meant was now their allegiance would no longer be to Rome and to Caesar, their allegiance would now be to Christ. What fascinates me about the three thousand souls here is how difficult Peter made it for them to be saved. He could have just said, "Let's pray. How shall you be saved?" He could have just said, "Let's pray now. Pray, pray this prayer with me, dear Jesus, dear Jesus. While I believe with all my heart. I believe with all my." Heart. He could have led them in that kind of prayer, but that's not what he says. He made it almost difficult. Repent. Be baptized. Why? I've been baptized already. Be baptized. Each one of you. It seems as though he's making it difficult. Now, when I think about how churches today, how the movement of our times today, it's the very opposite. It seems as though Christianity today is making it so easy to be a Christian. It's making it so easy to be saved. Or to to know Christ. Last year... About the, uh, around the summertime, I started noticing ads as I'm watching my, my football games. When I was watching my 49ers on, on their hot streak, and as I'm watching the, the games, and as I'm watching, I'm starting to see these ads pop up. He gets us. He's, he gets us ads. And it's, a, it's kind of this modern-day version of a, a type of Jesus that's very radical, And not only did I start seeing it on TV, I started seeing ads in billboards as I'm driving on the freeway of these ads called He Gets Us. And the movement of He Gets Us is portraying a version of Jesus where He gets us, that is to say, He understands us. He understands our anxiety. And they describe Jesus in this way. He's anxious like us. He has problems like us. He has imperfect, quote, coping mechanisms like us. He is, quote, a refugee, just like us. And so come to this type of Jesus because He gets us. They're opening up a version of Jesus that is completely foreign to the New Testament. And He's one who wants to receive them and open up the Gospel, making the Gospel so watered down and so open. When when I read my Bible, when I read my Bible, I don't see a very... Wide gate. I don't see a very open gate. Wasn't it Jesus that says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me? That is to say, you must die to yourself. Matthew 16, verse 24. In one of Jesus' most famous sermons, he said this Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. But there's another gate, for the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. God wants to make certain that you know what you're getting into, you need to count the cost of what it means to follow Christ. It means a complete denial of self, dying to self, dying to your old self, and living for Christ, rejecting sin, turning around because of the God that has now shown you mercy, that God who has now shown you the punishment for sin has been removed through the person of Jesus Christ who becomes your substitute, who takes your place. And when that, takes, when that is born in your heart, when that spirit-born conviction takes place in your heart, you receive His Word and you repent in faith and you know what it means to be saved it means this it means as a christian my life may not get better my life will actually mean more trouble and it began with these 3000 who made this profession of christ because what it meant was this they were changing their allegiance instead of to caesar they would say in in those ancient days they would say caesar curios caesar is lord that's what that was the expected Phrase the expected allegiance of all the citizens of that region because of Rome and the Caesars that would rule them, they would no longer say that, but instead they would say this new phrase. They would say, Iesu kurios, Jesus is Lord. And that would mean that they would deny the lordship of Caesar and designate Christ as their Lord, thereby changing their allegiance in these 3,000 souls. There was a cost to their obedience in following Christ. And that cost was a very public thing. A very public and visible thing. You want to follow Christ? This is what it looks like. Demonstrate it in public baptism. Make everyone see whose allegiance you now belong to. It's Christ. Years ago, I read a book by a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, he he talked about how we have really hijacked the word grace and we've cheapened it. We've cheapened it. And so he has a chapter in that book called Cheap Grace. Cheap Grace, meaning that the faith that many Christians in his day, this is back in Germany during the time of World War II, uh, so this would have been in the 40s, 50s, somewhere around there. He wrote about how Christians in that time cheapened grace because there was no self-denial. There was no cost to it. And he said these words. Listen carefully. He said this, quote, Cheap grace is the grace that we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. End quote. He would go on to say this, Costly grace is the treasure in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the kingly rule of Christ. Costly grace is the gospel which must be bought again and again, sought after again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock? Do you view your Christianity? Do you view grace in that way? That as if to say, I believe in Jesus and I don't have to do anything because I believe them here. I believe them here. Has there been conviction born that takes it from here to here, to your heart? Or is it just all here in your mind? Is it all in your mind? Or has it been costly for you? Because it meant that there was some resistance, some change, some forsaking of sin that now meant that your reputation is going to change. Your reputation of the past of fitting into this generation that this perverse generation is going to be changed. You're no longer part of that crowd. You're leaving that crowd behind and instead you're going to follow a new crowd. You're going to be joining this ragtag bunch of nobodies, uncool people that dress weird, that talk funny, that sing songs about the blood, that that, that come to church all the time and they have these books called the Bible and then they give their money away and they, they open up their homes to weird people. That's what happened in the new ch- in the church. That's they were so radically changed, and they said let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also, it doesn't matter. I don't care about that reputation. I care about what Christ thinks of my reputation. I think of I, I care more about what He thinks of me than what the people think of me. That's repentance. There's a fear of God. I, it's no longer a fear of man. I no longer think I'm afraid of what people think of me. I don't. I'm not. A, I don't. I'm not concerned about. The reputation that I had with my friends, I'm not concerned about the reputation I had with society, my prestige, my position. None of that matters. All I care about is this. What does God think of me? What does God think of me? And what does God think of me and my love for His Son? Have I listened to His Son? Have I obeyed Him and Him alone? Because His Son is that treasure in that field, as Bonhoeffer said, and I will sell everything I have to pursue Him. I will give everything I have for Him. I will forsake even family and family even mother and father. Jesus said he came to families not to bring peace, but a sword to divide families. Because there are some families he was going to say, don't do that. Our family never does that. Our family stays home on Sunday. Jesus says, I'm going to divide that family because one of those families, one of those members of the family might get saved and they might have to say, no, dad. No, mom. I think I want to go to church today because I want to hear God I want to hear my Savior preach the Word of God to me because my soul needs it. And you know what, Mom? I think you need to hear it too. Jesus came not to bring peace, but a sword. That's what He has come to do. He transforms people. He changes them. And notice the kind of change that happens when you're truly saved. Verse 42 says, this is what happens to them. And then, look how... And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. The change that happens is unmistakable. Unmistakable. There's a hunger for the new child of God to the Word of God. I, I, I just can't help myself. I want to know more. Will you teach me more? What does this, what does this mean? It's kind of like the, the Ethiopian eunuch what does this mean? I don't know what the book of Isaiah means. What does Isaiah 53 mean? Philip comes along. Let me tell you what it means. And he preaches Jesus to him. Please help me understand. I want to know. There's a hunger for truth. The first thing, the first evidence, the first mark of the life of a new believers is that there's a drawing to truth. They want to hear apostolic preaching and teaching. It says they were continually devoting That's a military term. That means to stand by. It's what Jesus said. Stand by and make sure the boat is ready. In Mark chapter 3 verse 9. Stand by and get ready. It's the same thing when a person is saved. They're always on standby as a soldier ready to go because they have the word of God longing for it. They want to hear from it. There was a genuine desire and hunger to know the things of God. Secondly, there's a devotion to each other. It says that they had fellowship. Not only was there a hunger for the apostolic teaching of truth, of hearing the Word of God, but there's a longing for fellowship. And that's a common word for us today as Christians when we think of gatherings, hospitality, home fellowship rooms, we think of potlucks, when we think of fellowship and that sort. And those are indeed opportunities for fellowship. And the, the words do tend to change over time. The original meaning of fellowship meant simply this, it's a common life that was shared together. A life that was shared together with God. It was a type of life where everything was shared. Nothing was held on to, but it was given. Because your love for God and your love for neighbor was so great that you did not want to hold on to your stuff anymore. You wanted to give it out. It wasn't just a single life, but a partnered life. And here's one of the things you might want to ask yourself if you're wondering if you're saved or not. Do you love people? Do you love God's people? Or do you find yourself, I, I, I just like the teaching. Oh man, they teach well over there. But you know, I, don't, I think I want to keep the weekends to myself. I, I want my evenings free. I want some me time. I want some me time. I want my time. But here, there was a, a longing, a desire. They were fellowshipping with one another. A desire for this common life to experience life together, a new life together in Christ. And then thirdly, there was a continual devotion to the Lord's table. They were breaking bread. They were breaking bread. I believe that the meaning of that is really they were gathering because the size of the church at that time, remember, it was an explosion. There was an explosion. They couldn't all fit in one place. 3,000 people. Imagine this place having 3,000 people. That sign says, I don't know, I can't read it, but there's a seating capacity here of this place. 3,000 wouldn't fit here. So what they would do is they would go from house to house, breaking bread, probably because that's how they would administer communion. Taking the Lord's table together along with a meal. And so that was a desire to remember the Lord in communion regularly. And spend time in remembering the, what the Lord, commands, the Lord commanded them to do. Do this in remembrance of me. And then lastly, a continual devotion to prayer. And these weren't just individual prayers, but always corporate prayers. Notice, it was it's always in the plural, they were continually, they all together were praying corporately. Because part of the love for God and love for the family of God is to continually be praying. Praying for what? For each other. For the needs of the church. For the gospel to go forth. For the preaching to go forth with power. And there's something that's really odd that happens to Christians when they get saved. They really clump into these little cliques. They, they just can't separate from, the, from each other. And I, and I see that, and I love that, because that's what it was like when I got saved. I remember when I got saved, I was always be around people and staying up late at night at people's houses. And I find myself seeing the same thing with my kids. They stay up late at night and invite their friends to our house. And I unfortunately sometimes have to kick them out of my house. And I do that out of love. If I've kicked you out of my house when it's so late at night, I do that out of love because we have church the next morning. But I do. It's it's beautiful to see there is a longing for Christians to be together because of their love for God and love for Christ. Let me say this in conclusion. With all the talk about church growth and revivals, one thing is certain, God will cause the growth. God is going to do it, not us. Not our plans. I'm not sure what will become of Asbury University or the colleges right now that are experiencing this revival. One thing I do know, Asbury revival has ended. The school said, "We can't handle the traffic anymore." They ended it on Thursday, February 23. If you're planning on visiting, it's 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 over. You don't have to go anymore. But that doesn't mean you have to go there to experience the love of God. You can experience it anywhere. If you have Christ, I pray that may there be spirit-wrought conviction. Christ glorifying salvation and God honoring transformation even in our midst. Who knows, maybe God will bring about revival in our day. And if He does, it will not be on our time clock. It will not be by our efforts. But instead, it will be by ordinary means. So here's your encouragement. Keep doing what you're doing. Preach Christ. Preach Christ. When you see no fruit in the little ones that you're preaching to, preach Christ. Keep going. Keep explaining, expounding the Word of God. You see no fruit, keep going. When you're discouraged and you see no fruit, keep going. Because you just never know. God may one day use ordinary means to produce extraordinary growth. Let's pray. Father, oh, so much could be said of Your Word, but I pray impress upon our hearts the simple things, the things that we tend to miss Conviction from sin. Help sinners understand repentance that's born from conviction that they would be saved. That they would be saved from their sin radically by the power of the Spirit. And that they would be transformed. That they would see that salvation is not just for them, but to belong to a church, to belong to a family of God, to love people. That's the mark. That's the mark of true salvation, true conversion. It's not just to be saved and you're at home by yourself, being happy. That's not it. It's being together with the family of God. So help us as a church to be faithful in doing this. Protect us from temptation to try to add programs, add some sort of mysticism, add some sort of special events. Lord, we have these events. We we want to be creative, but help us to be faithful to the main thing, preaching the word, making disciples, adding people to our membership so that you would get all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.